The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the Turba Philosophorum. What exactly is this, you may ask? The Turba Philosophorum? Well, it translates loosely to the Assembly of the Sages. And actually, what this is, is this is one of the oldest Latin documents that's been found pertaining to the principles of alchemy. In fact, it's, it's cited by some as being the oldest known of these treatises on alchemy, going back to the Greek philosophers. And this was translated by Arthur Edward Waite in 1896 and published by George Redway, London, England. So it's an interesting book here, and we're going to go through some of the initial parts of it and exactly how this is laid out is that it's a, a, a group of different philosophers and students discussing some of the teachings, discussing some of the old alchemical teachings and what their understanding is of it. And it actually gives you a pretty good viewpoint as to what it is that the Greek cultures believed about the world and how some of these sciences, these old natural sciences, were viewed in the ancient world. So, mankind back then had a different view of things than we do now. And I would say it was probably a little bit more on point and accurate as compared to the things we're handed now by our modern science that we're just told to believe because some fancy scientist out there said so. We may have some fancier tools now, but the thinking is flawed. And that's where the problem is. If you go back to some of these old philosophers and some of these old alchemists, they have a much more commonsensical way of thinking about things. And it aligns more closely with the natural world that we see around us. So it's important to understand some of these precepts. And it's important to understand what they had to say and maybe be able to apply that knowledge in ways in the modern era where we can see things much more clearly than what we're told. Because, let's put it this way, the science we have is what I would, I would tend to call what you would refer to as maybe a type of gatekeeper science. They don't want us to understand the real concepts on the ways things work. So we're handed this science and we're taught... In our school system, this modern form of science, and it's actually more scientism than actual science, and we're expected to memorize and repeat these things that we're told about this stuff and never question the veracity of their truth. And it's not a proper way of thinking. Memorization and repetition is not thinking. 
So you can do very well on tests. You can memorize what they call facts <laughs> and score well on a test and have a piece of paper showing that you've mastered memorizing this material. Does it make it more accurate? <laughs> Not necessarily. Does it mean that you've gone above and beyond out of your way to discover something new and novel about this place or you've done something special here no not necessarily so although they teach you what to think they don't teach you how to think and the old schools of philosophy and alchemy taught you how to think and this is an important distinction because we don't have this in the modern age we're not taught how to think we're taught what to think we're told what to think you see and there's where the difference lies so let's go a little bit into the preface here because in the preface A.E. Waite explains a little bit about the Turba Philosophorum so let's read that here the Turba Philosophorum is indisputably the most ancient extant treatise on alchemy in the Latin tongue but it was not, so far as can be ascertained, originally written in Latin, the compiler or editor, for in many respects it can scarcely be regarded as an original composition, wrote either in Hebrew or Arabic. However, the work, not only at the present day, but seemingly during the six or seven centuries, when it was quoted as an authority by all the alchemical adepts, has been familiar only in its Latin garb. It is not, of course, certain that the original is irretrievably lost. The Arabic and Syriac manuscripts treating of early chemistry are preserved in considerable numbers in the various libraries of Europe and have only been imperfectly explored. Unfortunately, the present editor has neither the opportunity nor the qualifications for undertaking such a task. There are two codices or recensions of the Turbo Philosophorum, which differ considerably from one another. What is called in the following pages the Second Recession is appreciably shorter, clearer, and on the whole, the less corrupt of the two, but they are both in a bad state. The longer recension has been chosen for the text of the following translation because it seemed desirable to give the work in its entirety. The variations of the second recension are appended, usually in footnotes, but where the reading of the text is so corrupt as to be quite untranslatable, the editor has occasionally substituted that of the alternative version, and has in most cases indicated the course pursued. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially, this translation, it came from the Latin, and the Latin came from either Arabic or Hebrew. We're not sure exactly which one. <coughs> or a combination thereof. So it, Latin wasn't even the original language of this, but this is the one that many, for hundreds of years, quoted as being an accurate source for alchemy information. So it, it dates back quite a ways, and it talks back about the time of the Greeks. So it goes back pretty far, and the ideas presented herein are actually pretty profound in some regards. So it's important to look at this stuff and have a foundational understanding of what it is that the old cultures taught and what the old alchemists understood that we don't today. So we're going to get into it here. And the way that this is formatted is it was a discussion between these various students and adepts in the philosophical circles. So they each took turns in speaking 
and they gave descriptions of what they understood to be some of the natural sciences or alchemical sciences and or processes that went on, what their understanding of how the world works. And it's an interesting thing to read, so we're going to go right into it. And it says, this is taken from an ancient manuscript codex, more perfect than any edition published heretofore. heretofore. So uh, we, we have here is a translation to English from the Latin, which was in turn translated from Arabic and or Hebrew. And it may have actually been older than that, too. So that, that's the whole point. This is translations of translations. So sometimes there's things lost in the translation process. But this is still a pretty good account of some basic information here. Foundational things to understanding alchemical principles and the way in which the natural world really works when we're not taught these things in the modern day. There's very few people that really pursue this line of thinking, for sure. But uh, it's definitely worth looking at. So let's read on here. The epistle of Eraslius, prefixed to the words of the sages, concerning the purport of the book, for the benefit of posterity, and the same being as here follows. Eraslius, begotten of Pythagoras, a disciple of the disciples by the grace of thrice great Hermes, learning from the seed of knowledge unto all who come after wisheth health and mercy. I testify that my master Pythagoras, the Italian, master of the wise and chief of the prophets, had a greater gift of God and of wisdom than was granted to anyone after Hermes. Therefore he had a mind to assemble his disciples, who were now greatly increased, and had been constituted the chief persons throughout all regions for the discussion of this most precious art, that their words might be a foundation for posterity. He then commanded Eximedris of the highest council to be the first speaker. And now we're going to have Eximedris come up, and he will talk now in this meeting here. So Eximedris says, I testify that the beginning of all things is a certain nature, which is perpetual, co-equaling all things, and that the visible natures, with their births and decay, are times wherein the ends to which that nature brings them are beheld and summoned. Now I instruct you that the stars are igneous and are kept within bounds by the air. If the humidity and density of the air did not exist to separate the flames of the sun from living things, then the sun would consume all creatures. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now you have this Eximedris. He's speaking. This was a student of Pythagoras. He's speaking about cosmology, what their beliefs were about cosmology here, and the way they viewed things. And they break it down, as we'll see, into these various alchemical elemental philosophies here fire air earth and water right so we see these things will be extant here in his speaking because he's describing what he understands how to be the true nature of how the world operates and how the universe operates and the quote-unquote solar system as we call it today so he says if the humidity and density of the air did not exist to separate the flames of the sun from living things, then the sun would consume all creatures. But God has provided the separating air, lest that which he has created should be burnt up. 
Do you not observe that the sun, when it rises in the heaven, overcomes the air by its heat, and that the warmth penetrates from the upper to the lower parts of the air? If, then, the air did not presently breathe forth those winds whereby creatures are generated, the sun, by its heat, would certainly destroy all that lives. But the sun is kept in check by the air, which thus conquers because it unites the heat of the sun to its own heat and the humidity of water to its own humidity. Have you not remarked how tenuous water is drawn up into the air by the action of the heat of the sun, which thus helps the water against itself? If the water did not nourish the air by such tenuous moisture, assuredly the sun would overcome the air, the fire, therefore extracts moisture from the water by means of which the air conquers the fire itself. Thus, fire and water are enemies between which there is no consanguinity, for the fire is hot and dry, but the water is cold and moist. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's going back to some of these older alchemical ways of thinking, and that we have these basic pairs of opposites that occur within the hermetic teaching and within the various alchemical sciences. So you have wet and dry is one of these dichotomies, and they relate back to the four philosophical elements once again as he's relating here. So uh, I hope I don't lose anybody on that fact here, but that's exactly what he's talking about. So we have the concepts of wet and dry, hot and cold, male and female, all of these different distinctions that go back and forth and can be related to many of these philosophical elements. This is the way in which the alchemists thought and were able to understand various layers of meaning of different things just based upon these principles, because everything existed in the hermetic thought within the bounds of these principles. And we've gone through these when we've studied their hermetic science of motion and number. When we went through that series, we discussed these various pairs of opposites. So just to give you a little context there. So anyway, let's continue on. <clears throat> the air, which is warm and moist, joins these together by its concording medium. Between the humidity of water and the heat of fire, the air is thus placed to establish peace. And look ye all how there shall arise a spirit from the tenuous vapor of the air, because the heat being joined to the humor, there necessarily issues something tenuous, which will become a wind. For the heat of the sun extracts something tenuous out of the air, which also becomes spirit and life to all creatures." All this, however, is disposed in such manner by the will of God, and a coruscation appears when the heat of the sun touches and breaks up a cloud. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's saying that uh, this, the air is actually the barrier here between the water and the fire of the sun. So it separates these two philosophically opposed elements, fire and water. It is the buffer between the two, and it causes a type of linkage together of these two opposites. So it's a medium through which these opposites can interact and find balance, you see. 
And all you have to do is look at what we're taught is the water cycle in our Earth Sciences classes, where they talk about how evaporation happens and then, you know, the water vapor rises. And as it goes up, it gets cooler and then it, it condenses again and comes back down in the form of rain. And we have this cyclical thing going on. Well, the ancient peoples understood this. But they understood something a little deeper because they understood that there's an intelligence that guides this sort of thing. And they called these intelligences elementals. Now, it might not be a traditional type of an intelligence like we would think of in the form of, say, a human being or some such thing like that. It doesn't have necessarily that extent of operation or free will or anything as we do. But it does guide these processes. So we have these opposites, these tenuous opposites, and they have the medium through which they can interact, and that would be the air. And it's through the principle of the air wherein the spirit of life emanates from because it combines the features of both water and fire together, you see. And we'll see as we go a little further how the other things and other elements kind of coincide here as well. But that was just the speaking of this eximetrist. So next, the Turba says, that's the council. Well hast thou described the fire, even as thou knowest concerning it, and thou hast believed the word of thy brother. And then we go to the second dictum here. So this is the second speaker. Eximetrist is the guy's name. Eximetrist says, I do magnify the air according to the mighty speech of Eximedris, for the work is improved thereby. The air is inspissated, and it is also made thin. It grows warm and becomes cold. The inspissation thereof takes place when it is divided in heaven by the elongation of the sun. Its rarefaction is when, by the exaltation of the sun in heaven, the air becomes warm and is rarefied. It is comparable with the complexion of spring in the distinction of time, which is neither warm nor cold. For, according to the mutation of the constituted disposition with the altering distinctions of the soul, so is winter altered. The air, therefore, is inspissated when the sun is removed from it, and then cold supervenes upon men. So I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So he's describing... This idea of the water cycle, like we discussed before, but he's also discussing spiritual connotations and attachments with that, relating it to the seasons, relating this to the springtime, wherein it's neither warm nor cold, you see, and he's saying how some of these things could alter even the winter time in these distinctions. So he's making some spiritual allusions here to these physical processes as well. So there's uh, other deeper meanings attached. So let's continue on here. So he says, The air, therefore, is in inspissated when the sun is removed from it, and then cold supervenes upon men. So when the sun is removed, so at nighttime, or wintertime, as it were, when it's removed or moved further back, the air gets colder, and then cold supervenes upon men. And with cold comes moisture and various other things. And this cycle of wintertime and death. And as we see, everything's cyclical and it relates back to these principles once again. So whereat the Turba said, 
excellently hast thou described the air, and given account of what thou knowest to be therein. So we move on next to the third dictum, and this is a guy named Anaxagoras. So he says, I make known that the beginning of all those things which God hath created is weight and proportion. For weight rules all things, and the weight and spicitude of the earth is manifest in proportion. But weight is not found except in body. And know, all ye turba, that would be all of you people on the council here, that the spicitude of the four elements reposes in the earth. For the spicitude of fire falls into air. The spicitude of air, together with the spicitude received from the fire, falls into water. The spicitude also of water, increased by the spicitude of fire and air, reposes in earth. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So you see what they're saying. Each of these elements, one is higher than the other. Fire is the highest, air next, then water, then earth is the lowliest element, the, the densest element. They like to use the word density in the old mysteries teachings with this stuff to describe these things. And I guess it's an adequate description because there's not a better way to really attempt to describe it, is there? So you have the fire is the purest form, the highest essence. The air is fire mingled in the air. The water is fire and air mingled in the water. And the, the earth has all three of those other elements intermingled with it. And this describes this stepping down process through the spiritual hierarchies into manifestation here in the physical terrestrial world here. The physical world, this material world that we recognize. So these are... These have different connotations, spiritual connotations attached to them as well. So we're not just talking purely about these things, about fire, water, air, earth, that kind of thing. They also have a spiritual connotation attached to them and have this tie into various spiritual worlds or spiritual planes attached to them. So that's what's being said here. So you see how everything is joined together this way. So he says that all these elements step down through this process here and repose in the earth. So let's continue on. Have you not observed how the spicitude of the four elements is conjoined in earth? The same, therefore, is more inspissated than all. Then saith the turba, Thou hast well spoken, verily the earth is more inspissated than are the rest which therefore is the most rare of the four elements and is most worthy to possess the rarity of these four. He answered, Fire is the most rare among all, and thereunto cometh what is rare of these four. But air is less rare than fire, because it is warm and moist, while fire is warm and dry. I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. <coughs> Pay attention to what's being said here, because now these four primary philosophical elements are having other attributes attached to them, which becomes hugely important when you want to think in alchemical terms. So fire is warm and dry. Air is warm and moist. Let's continue where we left off here. Now that which is warm and dry is more rare than the warm and moist. Then they said unto him, which element is less rarity than air? And he answered, water since cold and moisture in here therein, and every cold humid, is of less rarity than a warm humid. Then do they say unto him, Thou hast spoken truly. What therefore is of less rarity than water? 
And he answers and he says, Earth, because it is cold and dry. And that which is cold and dry is of less rarity than that which is cold and moist. So I'm going to pause for a moment here. So, so the rarest thing is to be warm and dry. That would be the fire. Then air is warm and moist. Then water is cold and moist. And earth is cold and dry. You see. And cold and dry is the most common form here in the physical when you're talking the density of the matters in the, the material world here. So that's what he's talking about. So he's saying earth is the most commonly found one here, this kind of thing, because all of these things are infused together in this creation in the, the physical material world. All of these four elements manifest here. So, and each one is one level or grade more rare than the other. So this is a stepping up, stepping down process through the spiritual worlds therein. So it's a different way of thinking about things. So it's, it's not something we're used to thinking in this way in the modern age. So sometimes it's hard to describe to anybody what exactly it is that these people thought back in those times and what the alchemists still hold on to today because the information is very valuable and it does give an accurate descriptor of things as to how they occur in the natural world and there's different connotations attached to each of these meanings so now when you think about fire you'll know fire is warm and dry sounds common sense right it sounds like common sense well it is fire is warm and dry right so uh, that, that's a known commodity but now you know earth is cold and dry water's cold and wet <laughs> once again this is all common sense but this common sense is the kind of thing that has left modern thought and then air is warm and moist so we have these different ideas inherent here so let's see what else that he has to say here so they say to him which element is of less rarity than air and he answers water since it, cold and moisture is therein more common and then i think we covered that part then earth because it is cold and dry and that which is cold and dry is less rare than that which is cold and moist and then it says pythagoras said well have ye provided o sons of the doctrine the description of these four natures out of which god hath created all things blessed therefore is he who comprehends what ye have declared for from the apex of the world he shall not find an intention greater than his own let us therefore make perfect our discourse and then the council replies direct everyone to take up our speech in turn and then they say speak Pandolphus. So next, Pandolphus speaks, and this is the fourth dictum here of the Turba Phosphorum. So Pandolphus says, I signify to posterity that air is a tenuous matter of water, and that it is not separated from it. It remains above the dry earth, to wit, the air hidden in the water, which is under the earth. If this air did not exist, the earth would not remain above the humid water. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Don't know if you completely understood what he was saying there. He's saying that air and water are not exclusively separate things all the time when you're speaking of the classical philosophical elements here. That the water contains a portion of air 
So when the Bible's talking about the waters above and the waters below, this is what he's alluding to here. There's a barrier that protects us from the sun and the stars that's made of a combination of this water and air. Now, this is according to the old Greek philosophers. This is according to Pythagorean teachings and some of the old alchemical ways of thinking. So when they're speaking of the waters above and the waters below, and that this is the constitution of what the Bible would describe as the firmament, this is the barrier that would separate us from the fire of the sun. It's the air. It's also the water, as this Pandolphus is saying here. So pay attention. Let's see what else he has to say. So he says that if, if this air did not exist, the earth would not remain above the humid water. And then the council answers, Thou hast said well, complete therefore thy speech. So then Pandolphus continues. He says, The air, which is hidden in the water under the earth, is that which sustains the earth, lest it should be plunged into the said water. And it moreover prevents the earth from being overflowed by that water. The province of the air is therefore to fill up and to make separation between diverse things, that is to say, water and earth. And it is constituted a peacemaker between hostile things, namely water and fire, dividing these lest they destroy one another. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So the air is the barrier that separates all these things, but it's also the medium through which they can interact. It's a bridge, you see. And that's why air is a huge component here when you're trying to think of something spiritual. Okay, It's the conduit through which spirit can essentially manifest in a certain sense here. It's, it's the bridge where it can cross between these different types of elements in a sense here if you're thinking in a philosophical term here so i know it sounds a little convoluted to modern thought and modern ways of thinking but it's because we have air that these different elements can actually coexist you see air is the medium that separates out the fire separates out the water and we're, we're speaking in true in strictly the philosophical elemental form of this so you can't take it too literally. I always you know, tell people, take a lot of this with a grain of salt. Because if you take it literally in the scientific viewpoint of the way we think today, you'd be thinking this sounds awfully nonsensical. But if you understand the principles of which they're saying here, how if you could actually, in your mind, cordon these things off into different types of worldviews or different compartmentalizations of between these various worlds that interact through the spiritual planes and stuff like that. If you could think in those terms, these more occultic type terms, I guess is the best way, or esoteric ways of thinking, then you could maybe better understand the things that are being said here. But surely there is a connection in this way of thinking and what we actually are able to witness in this place as to how nature works. So it's a little more simplistic and commonsensical the way that they described these things. 
But it also gets confusing for us in the modern era because we are so indoctrinated with our sciences and the way that we think about physical material reality here that we don't pick up the connotation that a lot of this is spiritual in context. And that's wherein a lot of the old alchemical thought was lost on the modern age because they're thinking that these people literally think you could combine mercury and salt and sulfur and transmute lead into gold, like literally, when that's not what they were talking about at all. At all. Uh, So this is where uh, the huge context is lost in a lot of this. So when we're speaking about these concepts of fire, water, air, and earth, yes, we have those physical components that we could see here in this world, but each one's a symbol that represents a higher spiritual aspect. And that's wherein we're getting to the meat of the matter here. If you're able to separate out those ideas from the physical manifestation that you see here and think in the clearly concept type of a way, think of it in the terms of a concept, then you have a better time wrapping your head around what's being said here. That's where it gets a little convoluted, because most people aren't accustomed to thinking in a philosophical way these days. So it's a lost art in the modern era. But at any rate, so this is what, uh, what what's his name here, Pandolphus says. So then the council says to him, If you gave an illustration hereof, it would be clearer to those who do not understand. Now pay attention, because he's going to give an illustration that we could better understand. So Pandolphus answers, and he says, An egg is an illustration, for therein four things are conjoined. The visible cortex, or shell, represents the earth, and the albumen, or white part, is the water. But a very thin inner cortex is joined to the outer cortex, representing, as I have signified to you, the separating medium between earth and water, namely that air which divides the earth from the water. The yolk also of the egg represents fire. The cortex which contains the yolk corresponds to the other air which separates the water from the fire. But they are both one and the same air, namely that which separates things frigid, the earth, from the water, and that which separates the water from the fire. But the lower air is thicker than the upper air, and the upper air is more rare and subtle, being nearer to the fire than the lower air. In the egg, therefore, are four things, earth, water, air, and fire. But the point of the sun these four accepted, is in the center of the yoke, and this is the chicken. Consequently, all philosophers in this most excellent art have described the egg as an example, which same thing they have set over their work. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, this is why we have the idea of the cosmic egg analogy that's used by all the New Agey folks and stuff like that. It's, it's part of the philosophical way of thinking here. It's part of the old alchemical thought. It's a good description. So when he's describing air, the air that separates the waters from under the earth and the waters above the earth, it's the same air, but it's a different principle involved here. But there's this thin barrier that he claims between the, the air that's between the the waters below in the earth, and the the air that's between the waters above in the earth. So you see, 
he describes it as being akin to an egg. So if we think about the world we live in as being akin to an egg, it gives you a whole different perspective of things, doesn't it? When you think in those terms. So we have this medium through which we exist. And we have these philosophical elements that undergird it. We have that below us. And we have that above us. Right? And we, this is a kind of manifestation of the layering effect here of how these elements interact with one another. So it's an interesting way of thinking, and it's something that would probably be purely lost on modern thought when you think in terms of the scientific here in our era. So that being the case, a lot of people would hear something like this and think it's totally silly and would tune right out. You have to change the way you think, you see. This is about learning how to think, not what to think. And because we're taught what to think, we are taught that an idea like this is silly. That that's not an accurate description of the world we live in. But how would we know that? If you use some common sense to delineate these different properties... You could arrive at these same conclusions. You might want to name them something different. It might sound a little backwards and silly to you to call it earth, fire, water, and air, the classical elements, when we have a periodic table of elements with over 120-some elements now. I, I don't even know what the count's up to on the periodic table of elements, but it's all essentially just subdivisions of these same elemental principles. That's all it is. It's just a more complex description of a simple process. And see, that's the thing. Mother Nature works very simply. And that's wherein we, we get it wrong. We overcomplicate things. In our attempt and in our hubris of thinking we're oh so intellectual and smart, we overcomplicate these things. And we make them into minutiae that we don't need to really understand in order to understand how it works. So, uh, you know, at any rate, I digress on that. But let's continue on, because now we're going to get to the fifth dictum here. And this is, Erisleus says, Know that the earth is a hill and not a plain, for which reason the sun does not ascend over all the zones of the earth in a single hour. But if it were flat, the sun would rise in a moment over the whole earth. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And this statement might make a lot of people out there upset who maybe are thinking in terms of the flat earth rather than the globe earth position. But if you listen carefully to what he's saying, he says the earth's a hill. So he's saying that he's not saying the earth is a ball. He's saying it's a hill. It's got various elevations, altitudes, and things like that on it. So you could interpret this whatever way you see fit to. But he's not claiming the Earth is round, either. He's not claiming it's flat. He's not claiming it's round. He's claiming it has various aspects to it, wherein it makes it impossible for the sun to shine on the whole thing at once. You see. So... Perhaps they knew a little something different about the world than we do today. But that's what Erisleus just said here. And then next, Parmendes says, 
Thou hast spoken briefly, O Arislius. And then he answered, Is there anything the Master has left us which bears witness otherwise? Yet I testify that God is one, having never engendered or been begotten, and that he, the head of all things after him is earth and fire, because fire is tenuous and light, and it rules all things on earth, but the earth, being ponderous and gross, sustains all things which are ruled by fire. So next we get to the sixth dictum here. And this is a gentleman named Lucas. So Lucas says, You speak only about four natures, and each one of you observes something concerning these. Now I testify unto you that all things which God hath created are from these four natures, and the things which have been created out of them return into them. In these living creatures are generated and die, and all things take place as God hath predestinated. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's saying that this physical material world we live in manifests all of these different four aspects of nature here. Because if you understand what's being said here, that's what these elements are, these four basic elements. They're understood to be aspects of nature, of the natural world. You see, the four natures by which things exist and manifest here in the material world. So that being the case, this is what they this is what they were taught. This is what the Pythagoreans had put forward here. And this is what has been held up by many of the alchemists and mystery schools through the years. So next, Democritus, the disciple of Lucas, answers, and he says, Thou hast spoken well, O Lucas, when dealing with the four natures. Then says Erislaus, O Democritus, since thy knowledge was derived from Lucas, it is presumption to speak among those who are well acquainted with the ma thy master. And then Lucas answered, Albeit Democritus received from me the science of natural things, that knowledge was derived from the philosophers of the Indies and from the Babylonians. I think he surpasses those of his own age in this learning. And then the council answers, when he attains to that age, he will give no small satisfaction, but being in his youth, he should keep silent. Going to pause for a minute here, folks. So they slapped down poor Lucas. <laughs> That's what went on here. Uh, so, you, you see, we have the same problems even way back in ancient Greece that we do here, right? You always have the young cocky guy that thinks he knows it all. And he just wants to get his two cents in. Well, they just slapped him down. So <laughs> that's it. we have these same same kind of tropes go on all the time. I'm thinking like of uh, like a, a boardroom meeting or something where you have the hotshot new guy wants to impress the boss. So you know he'll speak up and say something that he thinks sounds very profound and smart, and everybody's like, "That's a terrible idea," and slaps him down. So it's the same kind of thing here that's going on. So let's let's continue on. Because next we go to the seventh dictum. So essentially they told this poor Lucas guy, sit down and shut up, kid. <laughs> so <laughs> next, Lacusta says, All those creatures which have been described by Lucas are two only, of which one is neither known nor expressed except by piety, for it is seen, not seen or felt. And then Pythagoras said, Thou hast entered upon a subject which, if completed, thou wilt describe subtly. State, therefore, what is the thing which is neither felt, seen, nor known? So then, 
Then Lacusta answers, and he says, It is that which is not known, because in this world it is discerned by reason without the clients thereof, which are sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. O crowd of the philosophers, know you not that it is only sight which can distinguish white from black, and hearing only which can discriminate between a good and a bad word. Similarly, a wholesome odor cannot be separated by reason from one which is feted, except through the sense of smell, nor can sweetness be discriminated from bitterness, save by means of taste, nor smooth from rough, unless by touch. And then the council answers, Thou hast well spoken, Yet hast thou omitted to treat of that particular thing which is not known or described, except by reason and piety? So then he answers, Lacusta answers again, and he says, Are ye then in such haste? Know that the creature which is cognized in none of these five ways is a sublime creature, and as such is neither seen nor felt, but is perceived by reason alone, of which reason nature confesses that God is a partaker. And then they answered and said, Thou hast spoken truly and excellently. And then Lacusta answers, I will now give a further explanation. Know that this creature, that is to say, the world, hath a light, which is the sun, and the same is more subtle than all other natures, which light is so ordered that living beings may attain to vision. But if this subtle light were removed they would become darkened, seeing nothing except the light of the moon or of the stars or of fire, all which are derived from the light of the sun, which causes all creatures to give light. For this God has appointed the sun to be the light of the world by reason of the attenuated nature of the sun. And know that the sublime creature before mentioned has no need of the light of this sun, because the sun is beneath that creature, which is more subtle and more lucid. This light, which is more lucid than the light of the sun, they have taken from the light of God, which is more subtle than their light. Know also that the created world is composed of two dense things and two rare things, but nothing of the dense is in the sublime creature. Consequently, the sun is rarer than all inferior creatures. The turba answers and says, Thou hast excellently described what thou hast related. And if, good master, thou shalt utter anything whereby our hearts may be vivified, which now are mortified by folly, thou wilt confer upon us a great boon. But then Pythagoras chimes in here. Going to pause for a second here. So before we get to what Pythagoras says, and this will be the eighth dictum here, before we get to that, let's kind of recap what he says here. He says, this wise philosopher has now made the, the connection here that there are two rare things and two dense things of which the world's composed. Now, if you want to break those down, the two dense things would be earth and water, and the two rare things would be fire and air. So all things in this world are composed of these different aspects. Each of these things. So this is the combining of spirit and form. That's what he's speaking of, because fire and air represent spirit, and earth and water represent form. So this is the combination of spirit and form. This is the consubstantiation between spirit and form. 
And what is that? That's consciousness, folks. The consubstantiation between spirit and form is what we would define as consciousness. So this is an important idea, and this is how things manifest here. In the physical world, in this material world that we live in, this is what we have to work with. It's the consubstantiation between spirit and form. Now, spirit and form can exist separate from one another, but there's something special going on here, and this is what makes the place we live something special. This is why all manner of creatures in the hierarchies want to be here. You see, this is why Earth is such a special place. This is why we hear the tropes of all of the UFO stuff that goes on. How the aliens have been coming here and visiting here. And it's it's a very special place. And they're interested in being here. And they, they tinker genetically with human beings and stuff. Well, this is describing something a little more profound than aliens from outer space. Okay? That's what's going on here. This is just an analogy that's been popularized through science fiction tropes and stuff like that, and as an explanation of sorts that appeases the very hyper-materialist paradigm that we live in. This whole idea that aliens coming here for various reasons, this is to appease that hyper-materialist paradigm in which we live. It's to bring people's consciousness, their their thoughts, their ideals into this this type of a way of thinking wherein we think that this physical material world is the only thing that truly exists. That there's nothing beyond this. That everything's here and now. That consciousness is nothing but the electrochemical byproduct of the brainstem, the activity of the brain and brainstem. And that's all that it is. See, that's what they want you to believe. This is what you would call the humanistic type of way of thinking. This is why they hand us nonsensical teachings like the Big Bang Theory and Darwinian evolution. All these unprovable things, and they call it science, and it violates the scientific method. But yet they still call it science, and they say, don't you trust the science? Don't you believe the science? Don't you accept the science? And it's not science. But what they're doing is they're dumbing you down. They're making you further attach yourself to this material state of being here. They want people to disavow the spiritual aspects of life. To disavow the existence of spiritual realms, of things outside of here, that we can't physically describe with the five senses, as this good philosopher had pointed out here. But yet we inherently know that there's something else, don't we? We know. We have this sort of sixth sense, and according to some of the occultists, there's a seventh sense too, that human beings have a, seventh, have a set of seven senses, but we don't tap into them yet because we haven't evolved high enough in that type of way of spiritual advancement yet. That's what they claim. And there were times when we were able to perceive things within the spiritual realms, according to some of the teachings here, too. But we've lost that because of the way that we've evolved here in the physical, in the here and now. 
And like I said, you have to take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt. There's no way to really prove nor disprove any of it. It's just a different way of thinking, you see. But it's also acknowledging something that we have to acknowledge as being there, and that would be the supernatural aspect of existence, the spiritual aspect of existence. All of these things that we know, that we experience, that we, we can we can garner through reason and observation, but not necessarily experience in a physical way through our five senses, but yet we can sense it in a certain way. We know it's out there, can't describe it, and that's the nature of what's being done here. They're trying to describe the operation of this world in a way which we could understand through our physical senses here. And therefore they come up with these symbols, fire, air, earth, and water, and these other attachments, these other things we could understand with our senses, moist, dry, male, female, black, white, these kind of things, these opposites, these polarities. So this is what the philosophers set into being, into how to try to describe something that can't be described with our physical senses here. And that's what they set out to do. And people still get hung up thinking in terms of our physical senses and how it relates to our modern science. Because we try our best to quantify everything with our modern science into a way that it could be experienced through our five senses. And not everything fits in that neat little box. And of course, we're speaking of things spiritual or supernatural, things that are acknowledged largely by cultures around the world through time and distance. We all recognize these things. It's hard to deny them. But yet the, the modern scientific thought form is to deny them or to try to explain away certain phenomena as nothing more than the physical byproduct of a physical process here in this physical world. And that's not always the case. Like I said, not everything fits in that neat little box. Oh, but they try, don't they? And that's perfectly what this philosopher here had just described. He said, this thing of which we're speaking, and I think he's speaking of God, and he's speaking of the spiritual hierarchies, spiritual beings, different entities, intelligences that exist outside of the confines of our five physical senses here. They're definitely there. And we can only ascertain that they're there through the use of observation and reason. Ask a human being, how does your body heal? Do you know how that works? You don't. Even doctors don't know how the, the, the immune system works, how the human body heals. If you get a cut on your hand, say, for example, how does that work? How does it heal? Well, they'll come up with their best description. Oh, the, the, the bone marrow produces these cells, and then the blood cells go out, and they, you know, the, then they clot, and it forms over, and then it scabs over, and new skin cells produce, and then it grows. And, and they'll try to describe it this way. Well, what causes the body to do this? Like, uh, this is the whole thing. They, they truly don't understand, and they'll pretend like they know a little something, like if they know a little bit about cellular biology and this kind of thing, it gives a description of what the body does. It doesn't tell you why it does it. 
or how it does it. Just tells you what it does. And this is where we're at with this kind of thing. If you're thinking in strict terms of the physical, we don't really know how certain things manifest here in our world. We don't understand how it works. Because we're not taught how to think. We're just taught what to think. We're taught, you get the cut on your hand. You know what? You put an antibiotic cream on it and put a Band-Aid on it so it doesn't get infected. And then it'll heal up. Right? And that's what we're taught. We're not taught why or how. Or, like, how does this work? Your body just mysteriously and miraculously does this. What makes a thing live? What, what creates life? How does life manifest? It's not simply putting together chemicals in a test tube. That's what they want to try to do. But they can't ever produce the spark of life. They don't know how it's done. Where does the spark of life come from? They can't produce that from scratch, our modern science. They don't even know how it comes about. What happens if you, like, say, do an experiment like what uh, Mary Shelley described in the Frankenstein book? Could they potentially maybe put together a physical body of somebody that's that's been dead or a composite of it and reanimate it somehow? No, they can't. They could probably, you know, maybe artificially make the organs work or something and pump blood and stuff through it and, you know, keep it alive in that way. And they, they do that kind of stuff at times when people have nasty accidents or something and are brain dead. They keep the body alive, but that they're not living. Right? They're not really alive still. Their spirit, their animus is left. It's no longer there. They can't duplicate that. They can't describe that. In physical terms. See, this is the kind of thing that the philosophers thought about. And we're trying to describe in ways that we could understand with our five senses. And it, fought, it lies and falls outside of the realm of our senses. So it makes it very hard to describe. But let's go ahead and get back to the reading here. Now, Pythagoras jumps in here now and says... I affirm that God existed before all things, and with him was nothing, as he was at first. But know, all ye philosophers, that I declare this in order that I may fortify your opinion concerning these four elements and arcana, as well as in the sciences thereof, at which no one can arrive save by the will of God. Understand that when God was alone, he created four things, fire, air, water, and earth, out of which things he afterwards created all others, both the sublime and the inferior, because he predestinated from the beginning that all creatures extracted from water should multiply and increase, that they might dwell in the world and perform his judgments therein. Consequently, before all, he created the four elements out of which he afterwards created what he willed, that is to say, diverse creatures, some of which were produced from a single element. And then the council says to Pythagoras, Which are these, O master? Then Pythagoras answers, They are the angels whom he created out of fire. So then the council asks him, Which then are created out of two? Two of these elements. Because now Pythagoras is saying the angels are created out of fire. So I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So do you see, do you understand the spiritual 
connotation and connection being made here. They exist in a form beyond what we could sense with our five senses here. They exist in a realm that coexists within this one, but is separate and separated by the various other elements that were placed here. So he's describing the angels. This is Pythagoras now, described the angels as being made from fire. So then the council asks him, okay, out of these cre these creatures then, which are made of only two of the elements? So Pythagoras answers, out of the elements of fire and air are the sun, moon, and stars composed. Hence the angels are more lucid than the sun, moon, and stars, because they are created from one substance, which is less dense than two, while the sun and the stars are created from a composition of fire and air. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the sun, moon, and stars are made of a composite of fire and air, according to Pythagoras. So they are less dense than this physical world. They're more rare. They're finer than this place. So, according to this old philosophy, the old alchemical teachings, it would be impossible for man to walk upon the moon. You see, because it's composed of only two of these philosophical elements. And therefore, we are separated from it. We can't physically possibly go there. This is according to the old alchemical perspective from the Greeks. You could take it with a grain of salt. You could take it whatever way you want. But honestly, I think it gives a more accurate view of how the world works than our modern scientism does. Let's put it that way. And of course, I reserve the right to be totally wrong about all of this. But this is Pythagoras. This is one of the most upheld philosophers of any age, of any time, even still today. In fact, in such high regard, Pythagoras is held, that his name has actually become a title for some of these people in the secret mystery schools. Dr. Ruben Swinburne Clymer took the title of Pythagoras in the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. So understand, these ideas have stuck with the secret brotherhoods through all time. So you have to ask, what's the true nature of the world we live in? And why are they giving us fantasy? Why do they misdescribe these things to us and they're never straight with us? You have to wonder, right? But let's continue on now. So we see here the sun, moon, and stars, according to Pythagoras, are composed of fire and air. So then the council asks him, the Turba says, And what concerning the creation of heaven? Then Pythagoras answers and says, God created the heaven out of water and air. Whence this is also composed of two, namely the second of the rarer things, which is air, and the second of the denser things, which is water. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we see there's a distinction between heaven and the sun, moon, and stars, and also of the angels, or the, that hierarchy of powers, encompassed of only one element, which is finer still, 
It is subtler than the stars in the sky. And he's talking about heaven, the creation of heaven. So heaven's made out of water and air. Now he may be talking about the physical sky or the physical air here. That barrier, which the student earlier had described, that separates us from the fire. You know, the water's above, the water's below, the air and the water mixture together, which composes the firmament. That might be what he's speaking of when he's speaking of heaven. Not the physical place that we think of in the Christian circles here. That place. I don't think that's what he's speaking about. So, this is what he says then. So he says, God created the heaven out of water and air. Whence this is also composed of two, namely the second of the river things, which is air, and the second of the denser things, which is water. So then the Turba, the council, answers and says, Master, continue thy discourse concerning these three, and rejoice our hearts with thy sayings, which are life to the dead. But then Pythagoras answers, I notify to you that God hath further made creatures out of three and out of four. Out of the three are created flying things, beasts, and vegetables. Some of these are created out of water, air, and earth. Some out of fire, air, and earth. But then the Turba says, distinguish these diverse creatures from one from another. So then Pythagoras answers and says, beasts are created out of fire, air, and earth. Flying things out of fire, air, and water, because flying things and all among vegetables, which have a spirit, are created out of water, while all brute animals are from earth, air, and fire. Yet in vegetables there is no fire, for they are created out of earth, water, and air. Whereat the Turba says, Let us assume that a fire, with your reverence's pardon, does reside in vegetables. And then Pythagoras answers, Ye have have spoken the truth, and I affirm that they contain fire. So then the Turba answers, Whence is that fire? So then Pythagoras answers, Out of the heat of the air which is concealed therein, for I have signified that a thin fire is present in the air, but the elementary fire concerning which you were in doubt is not produced except in things which have spirit and soul. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Pythagoras is saying vegetables or plant life doesn't have spirit or soul, but it has a portion of the fire intermingled with the air with it. You see. So there's this little bit of subtlety there, and he's claiming these differences in the different types of beasts and animals and flying creatures and all of that as well. But he says that fire, the pure elemental fire, is missing from the vegetables, that they don't have a spirit or soul, but the animals and the beasts do. So so he says, Out of the heat of the air, which is concealed therein, for I have signified that a thin fire is present in the air, but the elementary fire concerning which you were in doubt is not produced, except in things which have spirit and soul. But out of four elements our father Adam and his sons were created, that is, of fire, air, water, and likewise earth. So I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So man himself has the distinction of being the only creature here that contains all four of these elements, the pure elements, the divine spark, 
that we're given from God, and we are created in God's image. That's what this means. Now, the animals do have spirits or souls, as Pythagoras just related here, but they lack some portion of these other elements. And if they have a, a type or portion of that element, it's mingled in a way with the other element, much like he claimed about the vegetables. Well, they do have a very thin amount of fire, which is mingled in the air portion of their being. Like I said, this is a very different way of thinking that most in the modern era aren't accustomed to. So let's see what else he has to say. Understand, all ye that are wise, how everything which God hath created out of one essence dies not until the day of judgment. The definition of death is the disjunction of the composite, but there is no disjunction of that which is simple, for it is one. Death consists in the separation of the soul from the body, because anything formed out of two, three, or four components must disintegrate, and this is death. Understand further that no complex substance which lacks fire eats, drinks, or sleeps, because in all things which have a spirit of fire is that which eats. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So that's a profound thing to think about as well, isn't it? So this element of fire is one of the important things. So he's claiming that anything that's a composite of any combination of these four philosophical elements will experience some sort of death or death phase. If something is composed of simply one of the elements, like the angels, they do not die. They do not experience death. Because death is the separation of these elements. So understand the separation of these elements. This is the death idea. And this is something that lies at the core of alchemical processes. Because what do you do in alchemy? Well, you separate out the constituent parts of whatever it is you're doing. You'll first uh, apply the, the fire... And you'll go through the negrito process, the blackening, and then you purify it further until it becomes white. And then you will recombine it with the oils and the salts and all of these things and exalt them in the process. Combine them with the liquid and you'll, you'll strain down that liquid till you have just an essence left and you repeat this process numerous times until you get to the exaltation phase. This is an allegorical representation of death and rebirth when it comes down to it, if you want to look at this from the spiritual aspect of things. And certainly there are alchemical procedures and processes that work. Spagyrics is a real thing. I'm sure there's other forms of alchemy that people more intelligent and more clued in on this stuff than myself are able to achieve but this is the context in which we get the spiritual alchemy which is the higher alchemy and we see that this separation of the spirit or the soul 
from the physical form is the essence of what death is, but that there's the reconstitution of these things. And now Pythagoras has said, understand further that no complex substance which lacks fire eats, drinks, or sleeps, because in all things which have a spirit, fire is that which eats. So anything that has fire in its constitution eats. So plants, well, they don't eat per se, do they? Not in the, the sense that the philosophers were speaking of here. They don't eat or sleep or drink because they don't have this fire, this essence, this soul, spirit, divine spark, whatever you want to call that. But let's continue on. So then the Turba, the council, answers and asks, How is it, Master, that the angels, being created of fire, do not eat, seeing thou assertest that fire is that which eats? So then Pythagoras answers, Hence ye doubt, each having his opinion, and ye are become opponents. But if ye truly knew the elements, ye would not deny these things. I agree with all whose judgment it is that simple fire eats not, but thick fire. The angels, therefore, are not created out of thick fire, but out of the thinnest of very thin fine fire. Being created, then, of that which is the most simple and exceedingly thin, they never eat, drink, nor sleep. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So Pythagoras is saying, uh, yeah, well, no, I'm talking about the thick fire, not the thin fire. <laughs> so I don't know if it's like, you know, double talk, or if he really understood truly what he was talking about here with it. So, like I said, you do have to take some of this stuff with a grain of salt. But uh, So, apparently now there's the, the distinguish, distinguishing characteristic. There's, there's thick fire and thin fire. And he's talking about the stuff that has the thick fire. Okay? Not the thin fire. The, that fire is so fine that the angels are made of. They don't need to partake in any of that kind of thing. So, these are intelligent questions that the council asked him, right? So... <laughs> That's funny, though. I find that funny. So he kind of had to take a, a double take on what he was saying here and try to make a distinguishing claim here between the the two things. So I don't know, you know if that hurts his credibility or not. Let's put it that way. So the Turba answers him again and says, Master, our faculties are able to perceive, for by God's assistance we have exhausted thy sayings, but our faculties of hearing and of sight are unable to carry such great things. May God reward thee for the sake of thy, thy disciples, since it is with the object of instructing future generations that thou hast summoned us together from our countries, the recompense of which thou wilt not fail to receive from the judge to come. Then Aracelius said, Seeing that thou hast gathered us together for the advantage of posterity, I think that no explanations will be more useful than definitions of those four elements which thou hast taught us to attain. So then Pythagoras says, None of you are, I suppose, ignorant that all the wise have propounded definitions in God. And then the, the council, the Turba, answers, it says, Should your disciples pass over anything, it becomes you, O Master, to avoid omissions for the sake of future generations. So then Pythagoras answers, If it pleases you, I will begin the disposition here, since envious men in their books have separated that, or otherwise I will put it at the end of the book. And then the Turba said, 
Place it where you think it will be clearest for future generations. So then Pythagoras says, I will place it where it will not be recognized by the foolish, nor ignored by the sons of the doctrine, for it is the key, the perfection, and the end. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, Pythagoras, keeping to the tradition of the ancient mystery schools, decided that he would put it somewhere where the profane or the foolish, the unwise, wouldn't recognize it for what it is. But those who were the sons of the doctrine, those who recognized it, would know what it was. So this is the equivalent to, let's hide it in plain sight. Let's use coded language to speak about these things. That's what's been said here. So this goes back a very long time. And th that, that whole idea predates Pythagoras as well, keeping the secrets hidden from the profane, the don't cast your pearls before swine nonsense, like always. So, and this continues on, and maybe we'll go through the ninth dictum here before we wrap it up tonight. So, this is the ninth dictum, and this is Eximenus that speaks. And he says, God hath created all things by his word, having said unto them, Be, and they were made, with the four other elements, earth, water, air, and fire, which he coagulated, and things contrary were commingled, for we see that fire is hostile to water, water hostile to fire, and both are hostile to earth and to air. Yet God hath united them peacefully, so that they love one another. Out of these four elements, therefore, are all things created, heaven and the throne thereof, the angels, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the earth and sea, with all things that are in the sea, which indeed are various and not alike, for their natures have been made diverse by God, and also the creations. But the diversity is more than I have stated. Each of these natures is of diverse nature, and by a legion of diversities is the nature of each diverse." Now this diversity subsists in all creatures because they were created out of diverse elements. Had they been created out of one element, they would have been agreeing natures. But diverse elements being here mingled, they lose their own natures because the dry being mixed with the humid and the cold combined with the hot become neither cold nor hot. So also the humid being mixed with the dry becomes neither dry nor humid. But when the four elements are commingled, they agree, and thence proceed creatures which never attain to perfection, except they be left by night to putrefy and become visibly corrupt. God further completed his creation by means of increase, food, life, and government. Sons of the doctrine, not without purpose, have I described to you the disposition of these four elements, for in them is a secret arcanum. Two of them are perceptible to the sense of touch and vision, and of these the operation and virtue are well known. These are earth and water. But there are two other elements, which are neither visible nor tangible, which yield not, whereof the place is never seen, nor are their operations and forces known, save in the former elements, namely earth and water. Now, when the four elements are not commingled, no desire of men is accomplished, but being mixed, departing from their own natures, they become another thing. Over these let us meditate very carefully. 
So then the turba says, Master, if you speak, we will give heed to your words. So then he answered, I have now discoursed, and that well. I will speak only useful words, which ye will follow as spoken. Know, all present, that no true tincture is made except from our copper. Do not therefore exhaust your brains and your money, lest ye fill your hearts with sorrow. I will give you a fundamental axiom that... Unless you turn the aforesaid copper into white and make visible coins and then afterwards again turn it into redness until a tincture results, verily ye accomplish nothing. Burn therefore the copper, break it up, deprive it of its blackness by cooking and bewing and washing until the same becomes white, then rule it. And we're going to stop right there. That's the end of the ninth dictum. And he actually described there the alchemical process. He was telling them how to truly do an alchemical process. He just named all the steps in there by describing them in the form of color and explaining how they make a tincture by combining these certain elemental aspects together. And he also made the distinction that we only understand the operation of these elemental aspects of air and fire through their effects here on earth and water. And that's what we see and experience. That we don't have any actual way of discerning these things in a visible way. And, and think about that. Think about the idea of the air that exists around us well it's invisible isn't it we don't see it but we know it's there because you know we might feel the breeze or some such thing and we know it has to be there we know it's there because we breathe it in right but we don't physically see it or experience it and the same i guess could be said of fire it's not something tangible that you can grab hold of and physically hold in your hand well, I wouldn't recommend trying to do that anyway. You'll get burned. But fire, essentially, it's the material that's burning that you would be able to grasp, not the fire itself. This is an essence that is not something that we has true, tangible, physical form here. So fire and air, these are more philosophical ways of thinking about these two aspects that relate to the spiritual nature of things and to the way this place works, you see. And that they only affect the physical through these ones that we can experience through our five senses. And that's what's being said here. We don't truly experience fire or air through our physical ex ex senses here. We experience the effects of fire and air upon the elements of earth and water that exist here. Different way of thinking, like I said. But that's what the Pythagoreans taught... As we see here, that's what uh, many of these old alchemical treatises teach on. That we're made of a composite of these four basic elemental substances. That there are other creatures and creations here that exist of a combination of three of these different ones. That there's things made of two that are finer still and maybe can't interact with the ones made of three and four in a direct way. 
the stars, the sun, the moon, and the stars, made of two composite elements, whereas we're made of four. And when you think about things in this, this way, it gives you a different view of how the world may operate. I think they had a clearer picture. A better idea of how things really worked in a better sense back then. Now keep in mind, this is the oldest known alchemical writing that we have in Latin. Now there's older ones written in other languages, but this is the oldest one in Latin. This is the one that was heavily grafted onto by many of the medieval philosophers and medieval alchemists who brought the teachings forward to today. This is the one that was grabbed hold of by the Rosicrucian Brotherhood and by the various others of these esoteric streams of knowledge that came forward. This is a lot of what they tie back their teachings to. The Pythagorean teachings, the Neoplatonic teachings, combined with some of the Kabbalah teachings from the Hebrew and from various other places. A lot of these different traditions combined together. And then you, you come up into the 1800s and the advent and rise of theosophy starts to combine some of the Eastern teachings with it and convolutes things all the more and confuses people all the more. Not to say there's anything wrong with the Eastern teachings. There's not. But when you have somebody that comes at them from this Western perspective and tries to tie them to their Western perspectives, and they totally mess them up and misconstrue and mistranslate them. And then you wind up with some troubles. And that's what's happened with a lot of these occult fraternities. They've adopted some of these ideas through many preeminent theosophists and various others that have brought forward ideas and convoluted them and misconstrued them, misdescribed them, and then they get carried forward in the misdescribed way. And people attach their ideologies to this. And it's only by tracing back things as far as you can that you could maybe begin to see where some of these things started to change over. Where some of the mistakes or misnomers were made. Or where some of the agendas come into play and it was manipulated in a certain direction. And that's what you could see. And a lot of this largely came about in the mid to late 1800s within some of these occult fraternities. And oddly enough, that's when a lot of them started claiming to come forward to say, now's the time we could start telling the profane and the outsiders about some of these things that we know. And you have these people saying that the secret great white brotherhood and such things uh, now gave them the directive. It's okay to go ahead and start maybe disclosing some of these facts to people out there. I don't know how much of that you buy into. <laughs> but like I said, you have to take a lot of that with a grain of salt. Understand, a lot of it has to do with agendas. A lot of it has to do with egos getting in the way with a lot of these various people who are looking to make a, a name for themselves or to feel some type of a way about themselves that they're important or they had something profound to contribute to the teachings or some such thing. So there's always that cult of personality and there's always the agendas that get tied in with it too. And we all have our biases and, and everybody's guilty of that. I have my biases, you all have your biases. 
And it's not saying necessarily that it's wrong to have a bias in a certain direction with things, but sometimes it interferes with the objective nature of viewing this stuff. So I try to stay as objective as possible with looking at these things, but also I like to maybe give credit where credit's due with a lot of things as well. And if I find multiple places that pan out the same ideas and they reify one another, well, that has a little more probability of being true and accurate. So that's the nature of this thing. But these ideas are important to look at at any rate. And it is a different perspective than our modern world gives us. And I think it gives us a better overall view of how things really truly work. So that being the case, that's why I like to look at this stuff and go back as far as I can with these things and just give it to you in their words as they have it written down. Because sometimes you find some great nuggets, and I think this one was a pretty good one. But anyway, that's all I got for tonight, everyone. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.
fucking baby.